another kid draws a picture or colors in, you know, and they show me. And I'm like, huh, it's not, it's not in the lines. I can do that better, right? And it gets worse. I mean, it's only gotten worse over the years when you can actually start to do some things and do some things well, right? I mean, the things that are in your wheelhouse, you start criticizing even more. Um, and so because I've officiated a lot of weddings, when I see someone officiate a wedding, in my mind, I'm looking at their script that they have in front of them. In my mind, I'm organizing it. I'm going, why did you do that? And this doesn't work. And this doesn't work. And, man, it's so bad when I listen to sermons. Um, I've gotten better over the years being able to turn off the critical filter and just enjoy the sermon for what it is. Um, but if I, if I were tired or angry or didn't have the self-discipline in that moment, man, I would be listening to every phrase and, and every little hermeneutical move that the preacher is, is making illustration and, and critiquing it this way and that way. Um, I had a friend who uh, we used to play this game when we listened to people preach or talk where we would independently list off all the different books that this person was probably reading that influenced them to talk this way uh, and to make these points. And then we would compare lists later and see who had the most uh, probable list. Um, I really, the it's a black hole that goes as deep as you want to go, okay? Um, <laughs> I refereed some church of the games this spring, and I'm watching the NBA Finals, and I'm not watching the game, I'm watching the referees. I, mean, I could do so much better than that. Why are they standing there? Why are they doing that? Um, and as I, I thought more about this, you know, my kind of propensity to be critical and question things and, and doubt, you know, why people are doing certain things or why they're saying this or, or saying that, um, I actually thought back to when I first came to the church uh, in 2006 as a high school senior. That's when I first started to the church. And I think um, it's actually because the church welcomed my critiques and welcomed my questions and welcomed my doubts that I was drawn to the church. Henderson, Chris Henderson, our worship pastor at the time, had a Bible study on Sunday nights. And the Bible study was kind of centered around um, asking deep, provocative controversial questions about whatever um, passage or book of the Bible we were reading. Um, and if, if we couldn't think of anything, he would throw some our way. And it was the first time I had kind of experienced that, that the center of a Bible study was about questioning things we don't have answers to. Um, usually, in my experience, that was what you didn't want at a Bible study. And you pushed those people away. They weren't welcome um, somewhere. And I came to the church, and the pastor at the time, Matt Rosine, welcomed my, my doubts and my critiques. I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of things I thought the church had done wrong and, and things I'd heard when I was a kid that I thought were wrong. I didn't understand the logic behind them. Um, and I found myself welcomed here. Um, and, and in a sense, I think we've always tried to keep that atmosphere here at the church, um, that your, your doubts are welcome here and your questions are welcome here. Um, which brings us to today's text, um, because in Mark, um, we're going to see a classic passage that deals with the relationship between faith and doubt. And what it is to believe, and then what it is to also have uncertainties, and to have questions, and to have doubts, um, and how those can, or if they do, coexist at the same time. So, if you have your scriptures, flip with me to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in verse 14. We'll start up in verse 14, Mark chapter 9, continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, the invasion of the Lamb, Mark chapter 9. If you remember from last week when Jacob preached, um, Jesus just had his transfiguration at the top of the mountain with his closest three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he's going to come back down now from the mountain and see what's going on with the rest of his disciples, the other nine. Mark 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. Maybe Jesus had this kind of afterglow from the transfiguration, okay, he's coming down the mountain, and they're still a little amazed by him. 
Um, and he comes down and sees his disciples in this big controversy, right? In this big fight. I can imagine it being like a parent who might leave their child for a second and come back and there's an adult yelling at their child, right? And you're going to step in between and go, what's the problem? Can I help you out? Um, Jesus comes back and sees his, his disciples in a situation that's a little bit bigger than themselves. Um, and so he asks the crowd, he says, what are you arguing about with them? Um, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds its teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, Jesus um, quotes him here and, and kind of puts it back on him. If you can, all things are possible, he says, for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And here you have the classic phrase um, that's echoed in the minds and hearts of Christians for centuries. I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him, and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to him, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, a couple of notes here before we dig into the heart uh, of the passage. This is the last exorcism in the Gospel of Mark. Um, so up till now, we're now in the second part of Mark. We've seen a handful of exorcisms. So this is going to be the last one. And it kind of serves for Mark as a summary of all the exorcisms Jesus has done. So if you were to compare this exorcism story to the four, five, six, seven that came before it, what you would find is one piece from every earlier exorcism story is found in this one. Um, for instance, the um, self-harm. Remember the demoniac Jesus encounters with the legion of demons who try to hurt him? Here, this, this little boy has a spirit that's trying to harm him. Remember the little girl who was like a corpse, was dead, and Jesus takes her hand and lifts him up or her up? Here, this boy is like a corpse, and he's dead. Jesus takes his hand and lifts him up. Um, all of the previous exorcism stories are found here. This is almost a summary of Jesus' exorcism ministry. Um, there's a few funny things about the passage. Um, the boy is freaking out on the ground, and Jesus, instead of healing him immediately, starts asking the father for medical history. Um, you think the father's like, can we talk about this later? Uh, my son's over here convulsing, seizing out. Okay, can we fix this? Um, Jesus usually doesn't do this. He's usually not very concerned with history and medical details and things of that nature. But here, you know, the boy's freaking on the ground. He wants to have a chat. Um, just tell me about this. How long has it been going on? What's it usually do? Um, and then finally, he heals the man. Um, what's happened in the story is this guy has brought his son to the disciples for healing. He's been trying to find Jesus. Jesus is on the mountain, though. His disciples have been successfully casting out demons. So they say, we've got this. He's given us, he's delegated his power to us, we'll cast the demon out. But they're not able to. Um, and so that's why there's this big commotion when Jesus comes down. Well, later they'll ask him, 
what's the deal? We've been able to cast out all these demons, and we couldn't deal with this one. And, and Jesus will say, this one requires prayer. Which is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, because Jesus himself doesn't pray in the passage to cast him out. Um, Jesus just cast him out, right? And two, we would probably assume there was always prayer involved in the exorcisms. Um, but there seems to be uh, maybe some kind of deeper level of evil in certain cases that require more focused spiritual effort um, to, to battle in warfare. Um, and so, for whatever reason, um, a theme starts to develop in Mark, that uh, starts with the disciples here, that things are going to be harder as we go closer and closer to the cross. Um, the disciples' triumphant ministry to this point is going to get harder as they learn what it means to follow Jesus and to take up their crosses. Um, and again, the, the kind of heart of this passage is the relationship between faith and the kingdom of God. The relationship between having faith and, and hearing the words from Jesus that all things are possible. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus sees faith as a, an almost prereq for experiencing the transformation and the beauty of the kingdom of God. Um, he, he said repeatedly, if you the smallest of faiths, you can move mountains. Um, anything is possible for the one who believes. And then we get, again, this classic phrase here. Um, that commentators have no idea what it means. It's remarkable. If you read um, biblical scholars talking about this passage, how they skip over it or, or devote just a few sentences to it. Um, but yet this, this one sentence stays with us, becomes very famous to Christians, becomes our prayer. I believe, the Father says, but help my unbelief. And we look at a statement like that and, and we have questions. We might ask, you know, is this not contradictory? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, which is it, man? Right? Do you believe or do you not believe? Do you need help? Um, it seems like one or the other has to be true. It's like saying, I am red. Will you help me not be blue? Right? You're either one or, or the other. Which, which is it? I believe, help my unbelief. Um, or, in a weird way, can those two things coexist? Can faith and unfaith, doubt, uncertainties, questions, unbelief, can they, can they exist at the same time? Um, there's a few ways to, to think about faith and doubt, the relationship between faith and doubt, which is what we're going to be really focusing on uh, this morning. And Christians have disagreed about how to view the relationship between faith and doubt um, throughout the centuries. Um, I'll suggest this morning there are two primary choices when you want to view the relationship between faith and doubt. One of them is much more popular, and, and we've probably grown up with this entrenched in our minds. And one of them I'll, I'll make a case for this morning. And I'll argue that it's more faithful to this text and, and a more beautiful picture of faith, um, biblically and theologically. Um, so here's the, the first one. I've titled it this. Two frameworks. The first framework is this. Faith and relationship, uh, faith and, and doubt are enemies in a zero-sum game. Um, a zero-sum game means um, you're either 100 or zero, right? There's no overlap. You can't have two 100s. Um, if you increase over here, you're decreasing over here. If you increase over here, you're decreasing over here. So in this framework, the more faith you have, the less doubt you have. Right? The more you fill up your container of a person with doubt, the more it displaces, or with faith, the more it displaces doubt. They both can't be there. Or, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the more doubt you have, the less faith you have. Your container's filled up with more doubt, and it's displacing any sort of faith. The two cannot coexist. They're opposites. Doubt is the enemy of faith, and, and a framework that sees them as um, enemies in a zero-sum game. Faith in this framework is defined as, as sort of a certainty about a proposition. 
um, more of an intellectual certainty. So, so let's play a game. Raise your hand if you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. About 75%, okay. Um, wasn't expecting that. Uh, I'm hoping if you didn't raise your hand, you just didn't want to raise your hand. Um, I don't, maybe if you're like the smack theorist, okay. Um, for the most part, I'm hoping, I, don't, I really don't, we can just shut it down right now, I guess. Um, I'm hoping we can go along with this. We all hopefully believe 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? Um, and if you believe that that's true, um, any doubt that you have would lessen your belief in that statement, right? If you go, well, sometimes I wonder if it's five. <laughs> However much you wonder that, right, decreases how sure you are about two plus two equaling four. Um, and in this model, that's how we view faith. That's how we view believing in God, having faith in Jesus. It's a zero-sum game that cannot coexist with doubt. But I'll suggest to you that there's another framework available. We might call this framework, um, faith and doubt are, are friendly companions on the journey. Instead of enemies in a zero-sum game, they're friendly companions on the journey. We might say faith and doubt in this framework are not in tension, but they often coexist together, like they seem to do here in this man. In fact, we, we might say in this framework, doubt not only coexists with faith, but it at times can be helpful for our faith. It can be beneficial for our walk with the Lord. It keeps us honest. It keeps us growing. In this framework, faith is defined as a commitment to living in light of a personal, relational trust in God. Faith is less of an intellectual believing in a proposition and more of an active commitment. It's a choice to act in certain ways based on a trust you have in a person. Instead of 2 plus 2 equals 4, we might say faith is more like this. It's, it's not believing in the formula, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's more believing that your parents love you. I believe that my parents love me. I have faith in that. But are there times, and were there times growing up when I questioned that? Oh, yeah. And I let them know. <laughs> Now, they've done a whole lot of things to prove to me that they, they love me. They've done some small things. They've done things I don't even know about. They've done things that are huge to prove to me that they love me. But there are times when situations arise or I'm not getting what I want from them, right, where I question in my mind, I go, how does that make sense? How can you love me and, and still have this, still allow this, still say this to me? Um, but notice that those two are not opposites. Um, I can only, in this framework, doubt if I have faith. Faith would not be the opposite of doubt. The, the opposite of faith would be not having faith. You can only doubt if you have faith, right? If, you, if you're doubting, what are you doubting? Something that you already have this foundational belief in. I already have this sense of trust that my parents love me, so now I'm doubting how this fits into that foundational belief. They coexist. Think of the child who butts heads with his parents over and over and over and over again and is in a heap load of trouble um, and has for weeks and months told his parents that he doesn't love them, he hates them, they don't love him. Um, there's this big conflict in the family. And then the child gets arrested, goes to jail, has one phone call. Who do they call? Their parents. Why? Because no matter what doubts they have, on a foundational level, they still think, my parents love me. And even with those doubts, I'm going to act on the belief 
with this commitment that this person loves me and wants to take care of me and help me. This is a much different way of viewing faith. In this way, it can coexist with doubt. Faith is this active trust. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Exodus that just came out recently in the past year or so. Um, it's a big blockbuster about the biblical story of the Exodus. Christian Bale was in it. Um, there's this beautiful scene in there, uh, which really left a mark on me, where the Israelites are about to cross the Red Sea and leave Egypt. And the, the army's chasing them, and they're trapped on the beach, right, with the sea in front of them. And in my mind, I had always imagined the sea parting, and there being this, like, pathway, right, lighted up with signs, um, at worst, a couple puddles that you have to step over. And then the Israelites go, huh, this is cool. And they walk through the pathway. The Egyptians are destroyed. Um, and then so goes the story. The beauty of art is that it offers us other ways to think of and look at stories. Um, and, and this is where Christians, I think, sometimes get confused with media, right? We, we question how accurate a certain movie was. And, and there may be a time or place for that. But if you want accuracy, do a detailed exegetical study of the text, right? Art is not accuracy. Art is drawing you into the story. It's trying to look at you, get you to see things in a different way, to feel things in a different way. Um, and that's what this movie did for me in this scene. Because what happens um, in the movie is the Israelites look out of the ocean in front of them, the army advancing, know they have an hour of life left, and they start walking into the ocean. Aimlessly. Like, pick a point where you can't see anything anymore in the ocean, and then they start walking towards it. And they're ankle deep. And pretty soon they're knee deep in water. And pretty soon they're waist deep in water. I'm watching this going, this is not how I imagine the story. <laughs> and then slowly but surely the water starts to bubble and move, and then it's separated as the Israelites walk across the Red Sea. I thought, what a different picture of faith. There wasn't this, this red carpet pathway laid out for them. They had to actively trust that God was going to provide in them. And I bet when they were ankle deep, they had some doubts. And when it was up to their knees, they had some more doubts. And when it was up to their waist, they were really wondering. But with every step, there was a step of faith. I will act on the trust that you will come through for me. Even though this water is starting to scare me. This is another way, perhaps, we can view the relationship between faith and doubt. Doubt and uh, this case would not be the opposite or the enemy of faith. So you have these two frameworks. I, I, I think that most of us in the Western world have grown up in this first framework. Because faith and doubt are opposites. They're enemies. It's a zero-sum game. There are some problems with this, though. Um, there are some logical problems with it. The, the first one, the biggest one, I think, is it reduces faith to the psychological gimmick. Um, where faith is all about trying to muster up enough intellectual belief so that we can ignore any evidence to the contrary. Um, and some of us are better at doing that than others. Um, it's a personality thing. Some people just don't care much, don't have the intellectual capacity to think things through deeply, or just are very trusting, whereas others are like maybe more critical, more questioning. Um, it's this kind of psychological gimmick um, where, where we try to convince ourselves, no matter what the situation is, that we believe and we believe and we believe. And what happens is it creates a very closed-minded type of individual, type of community. And in fact, if you look around, this is what Christians are known for. Being very closed-minded. Being very narrow-minded. Why? Because we thought 
We needed faith. And we thought faith meant ignoring anything else that might cause us to reconsider what we already experience. I guess I'm always going to be a second-class citizen in um, this society. Um, theologically, seeing faith this way makes salvation um, dependent on belief in propositions. We might call it salvation by propositions instead of salvation by grace. Um, you're not saved based on what you think in your mind, like a sentence. Mustering up belief that Jesus died for my sins. That in itself, some level of reaching certainty about that sentence does not save you. What saves you is grace. God himself saves you. And then you hopefully come to believe certain things because of that salvific grace. Um, but we don't earn our salvation by um, believing or checking off the right boxes next to opinion polls. Um, textually, again, it doesn't make sense of this passage. Here in this passage, this man has belief and unbelief, faith and doubt, existing together. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. And Jesus doesn't say, well, it's not good enough to get the result you wanted. Jesus doesn't say, well, okay, step back from the situation and try really hard to believe. Jesus says, your son's healed. It's enough for Jesus. They coexist. We could look closer at the second framework, seeing faith and doubt as companions on the journey. Um, again, and one I think it fits this text. The second thing I think is it, it fits our experience. If we're truly honest with God and with ourselves, no matter how we try to reconcile faith and doubt, we all know that they're both inside of us at the same time. That's why so many people for thousands of years have looked at this phrase and said, that makes sense. I, even if I can't explain it, even if I can't type out a paragraph about it, that makes sense. I believe, help my unbelief. As weird as it sounds, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then we, we might find out it actually has a very rich theological history behind it. Theologians, since the very beginning of the church, have seen doubt as a companion to faith, not an enemy. Um, perhaps a quote to remember from today, a, a theologian, Frederick Buechner, says this, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it awake and moving. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps it awake and moving. John Calvin um, who I think is very too certain about certain things, um, has this beautiful passage in his dogmatic um, work, The Institutes, um, where he talks about faith and doubt and how they coexist. And he says, faith is not propositional. It's not something that's intellectual like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Faith is relational. Having faith is not necessarily believing that God exists. It's trusting that God will come through on his promises and acting as if that were the case. And that indeed can coexist with doubt. And he has this beautiful exposition of the Christian's walk with faith and doubt hand in hand. So if we were to, to go forward with this framework, that the faith and doubt perhaps are companions, that they can coexist together, um, what I want to do now is examine some different types of doubt that we might encounter in our lives and look at how they can be beneficial if they are companions, look at how they don't destroy faith but might build our faith up um, and in fact, for each one, I'll give you a little prescription. Um, I am not a doctor. Um, I'm working on Bob White in the first service to give me a prescription pad. Uh, I asked for a DA number. He said that wasn't going to work. Um, but I'll, I'll give you a little prescription for these three types of doubt. Um, so Christians historically have always tried to divvy up doubt in the different types of doubt. Gary Habermas is a real famous um, division. He says there's intellectual doubt, there's emotional doubt, and there's volitional doubt. 
Um, so intellectual uh, idea in our mind doesn't make sense. Emotional, um, we just can't get over it for some deep-seated emotional uh, traumatic reason. Or volitional with our will, we just can't seem to do it no matter how much we think it might be right. Um, I'm going to divide it in three ways, um, but, but use different language, okay? Um, so here's the first of three kinds of doubt um, that I can identify as companions on our journey, um, companions with faith. The first is this, uh, resistant doubts. This is the kind of doubt that acknowledges something is the case and that God's desire is such and such, but has a hard time doing it. They resist submitting to God's will in this area of their life. Um, they, have again, have faith in who God is. They have faith in the fact that this is what God desires. They just can't seem to get their feet to match up with this faith. Um, and, and what I want to suggest is when you encounter this type of doubt in your life, so an example would be... Um, you know that Jesus wants you to live generously with your money. You get it. You've heard it. You've read it. You don't have any doubts about it. But when it comes time to write the check, it's a little bit harder for you. Or when you're about to sell everything you own and give it to the poor, you have some uncertainty. That's a pretty big bet. What if I misread all this? What if the prosperity preachers were right and I'm supposed to be rich? I'm gambling a whole lot on, on this interpretation. You have some resistance doubt here. Um, and I want to suggest resistance doubt is a, a stage on the way to a stronger faith. Um, it's, it's a temporary location. And it's, it's suggestive of a battle inside of you that should be encouraging. It's suggestive that the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. Um, and that even though you might not be where you'd like to be today or where others would like you to be today, um, you're on that journey. In a way that people who aren't on that journey don't experience this type of doubt. Don't experience this type of struggle. Um, for instance, I was talking with a, a student in the fall um, of, of last school year. And, and he's one of these students that other teachers have written off. And, and he's kind of a, uh, labeled as the bad kid. And for whatever reason, I've always had a relationship with him. He got in a lot of trouble and, and did some boneheaded things. And came in my room and he was crying and going over it and over it. Um, and, and we were talking. And, and it came out that he... He said, in his words, he knew too much about Christianity to be a Christian. It's interesting, you know, explain that to me. He goes, I know that being a Christian is more than what I was told growing up. It's more than the sinner's prayer or this or that. It involves real sacrifice and real commitment and, and a real lifestyle change. And he goes, but I'm 14 years old. And I, I've got so, much, so many hormones in me. I can't tell left from right. And he goes, can I be honest with you, Mr. Tanner? I said, yeah, be honest with me. He said, I would, I would rather have sex and do drugs in my teenage years than be a Christian. And I was like, well, that's honest. Thank you. Um, that is honest. He said, he said, I would rather do that and not call myself a Christian because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be dishonest. I know what being a Christian means. And there's a part of me that wants that and thinks that's right and that's true. But there's a bigger part of me right now that says, I want to enjoy these things. I want to go experiment and, and, and see what this is about. And now my response to this kid was probably different than, than some other teachers' responses might have been. Because I told him, I told him, that encourages me. I'm happy to hear that from you. And he's kind of like, what? Expected <laughs> <laughs> to be arrested, I don't know. I was like, because to me, you understand so much more about Christianity than most people who claim to be Christians do. You just don't care. 
We've never thought about what it might require of them to be a Christian. We just take the name and go do things otherwise. I respect your, your honesty. I respect your commitment to not living a lie to yourself or to other people. Um, and I said, in fact, the fact that you're wrestling with this, even if you go down the wrong road for the next five or ten years, which I don't want you to do, but even if you do, the fact that you're wrestling with it right now indicates to me that I'll probably see you as a committed Christian at some point in your life. The prescription for resistance doubt is time. Patience. Which sometimes we, we don't have a lot of as Christians. Would I rather have this kid have this huge transformation in high school and, 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 and follow Christ? Yes. What I'm imagining will happen is he'll get married, he'll do his teenage thing, he'll get married, he'll party in college, he'll get married, um, he'll have a kid, and that'll make him rethink some of his, his life decisions, and he'll end up in a church, and he'll probably end up being, I think, a, a, a leader in whatever church he ends up in as an adult. I'm guessing it's going to be a 10 to 25 year game. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't keep me up at night. I mean, yeah, would I rather other things happen? Sure. But you don't always get to force other people to do what you want to do. But I think the fact that he has these wrestlings is a, a great indicator that the Spirit's got some kind of hold on him. And he could run for 10 years. But guess what? In, in the, a timeline of eternity, 10 years is a very short time. 10 years is not, shouldn't be concerning to me or to God or to the church or to anybody else. So I'm going to let him wrestle. I'm going to let him resist. I'm going to let the Spirit do his work. You need time. And then if you've got resistance doubt, if you can't seem to put faith to what you know, um, you, you need to develop discipline. That would be a prescription. We're lacking in discipline um, these days. Um, the ability to think through long-term gratification versus short-term gratification. The ability to think through habits and virtues. Um, discipline and time, I think, will help you turn resistance doubt into a benefit to your faith, lead you into a stronger place. Um, now, the second type of doubt, resistance doubt, we, we might call this certainty doubt. Um, this is when you are not 100% sure about something. You're 99.99999% sure, but there's that tiny little part of you that always wonders, what if I'm wrong? I could theoretically be wrong about this. I'm wrong about a lot of things. I could be wrong about this. I would suggest to you that certainty doubt um, one is perhaps better than we normally think of it. I think one of the problems we have in the world is that too many Christians are way too certain about certain things. And we all need a little dose of humility. And we all need to sit back and wonder about even some deeply held things. Maybe we're wrong. And maybe we should be open to discussing this and to hearing other viewpoints. Um, certainly doubt, though, I don't think is intentional at all with your faith. I think it's just a result of the fact that you're a human being. You're a creature. You're never going to know 100%, even if you're right about something. You can't know 100%. It's not within your capabilities as a human being. And if you are 100% certain about something, I would, I would question what went wrong, right? When did you stop thinking you were a creature? When did you stop thinking that you were limited in your knowledge? Um, you should maybe be a little bit more open-minded about certain things. So, so I can think of all kinds of things, right? Creationism, evolution, that whole, I believe that God created the world, and then I see all the scientific data. Um, and the framework that says faith and doubt are opposites. What you, you end up doing is pushing people who believe in science, and you think that's the evidence, they'll go away from the faith. If I can't exist as a Christian and someone who believes the evidence the scientific community gives to me, then I have to choose one or the other. Or you can say, maybe they're companions, 
and I don't know how it works. I can come up with theories and piece it together this way or that way. And, and maybe hopefully one day someone will come along and say, guess what? No one knows how it works. The scientists don't. The theologians don't. We're all walking with a little bit of doubt. We're certain about these things, but we're not 100% certain. We're all working with theories here. We're predestination. Right? I mean, we get to certain points of um, free will, predestination, and election, all these things where we think this is probably how it works or this is probably how it works, right? But, but we're never certain about it. I don't think that's a problem. I think that's just a, a result of, of who we are, of what we are. Um, I think it's a, a, a partial understanding of God and his ways because we're not God and we don't know his ways fully. Now, something's been revealed to us through the scriptures, um, but, but we're just simply not there. That's what Paul speaking over when he says, for now we see dimly, like looking in a, a dark glass. Um, we just don't know everything perfectly. Um, for certainty doubt, the prescription would be, I think, prayer. Draw closer in a relationship to the Lord. Certainty doubt, I think, is what the man is experiencing in this story. Um, he obviously has faith, the active type of faith, right? He has walked, done the actions, trusting that Jesus is going to come through for him. So he says, when he says, I believe, I think that's what he's referring to. Look, I come here, right? There's a large part of me that organized my life around the belief that you're going to heal my child. But my child right now is convulsing on the ground, not healed. And so there's some doubt. Are you? Can you? Will you? And when Jesus heals the son, I think he's taking care of the certainty doubt. Well, there it goes. He did it, right? But it was his prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Make me certain about this. Draw me closer into this trusting relationship with you. That, that gets him to the point where, where he needs to go. So you have resistance doubt, certainty doubt. And the last one would be questioning doubt. This is when you are wrestling with notions about who God is, what the scriptures teach, what God is desiring to do in your life and the life uh, of the world around you. Um, again, I think this has no tension with faith at all. I think this is step up and step and part of what it means to have faith. The scriptures repeatedly in the New Testament tell us to examine your faith. Think it through. Critically evaluate it. Test to see what's right. Hold fast to what is true. You can't do those things if you just blindly believe in the first thing you hear. You've got to, to examine. You've got to think critically about them. Um, it's not doubting God. It's doubting human ideas about God. And there's a huge difference between the two. And when people can't understand the difference, personally, I get very frustrated. Right? It's not that I'm doubting God in any way. I'm just doubting what you're saying about God. Because there's a big difference between God and your ideas. There's a big difference between God and my ideas. Right? I'm not threatened if you doubt something that I say. You should probably doubt some things that I say. And, and in no scenario am I thinking, oh, you're doubting God, right? You're this faithless, horrible person. Um, you know, you're about to join a secret Muslim terrorist cell. Um, no, right? It, there's a big, infinite gap between my interpretation or my idea of God and then who God actually is. Um, for example, you know, you have theological questions. Certain things that you wrestle with. How can this be and how can this be? Or what does this mean? I've heard it like this. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, I often have people come and, and you know, they have these theological questions. And I don't often give the answers that they're looking for. Just this last week I had someone sit down and go, Hey, I'm thinking this. And it really seems like all the evidence is leading to this. But every time I say it to people, they think I'm crazy. And I don't know. I just want to know, you know what's the right answer. My response was, um, well, I'm not, I can't give you an answer. As if I had an answer, right? Um, 
But I will tell you this, you're not crazy. When you notice that, you notice that, you notice that, yeah, I've noticed those things. Here's a list of theologians for the past couple thousand years who've noticed those things. So you have permission to walk down that journey. Some questions might be time wasters, right? Sometimes you might have a question and it's just because you misunderstand a word or you misread a verse, right? And it's a five-minute quick fix. But a lot of times questions are not something that you can just give an answer to. They're something that you can just be affirmed in. That's the right question. That's a good question. You did notice the flaw in that theory. You did notice the flaw in how people are talking about God. Keep journeying down there. And when you come up with a conclusion, come tell me. And we'll compare notes. Because I don't have it. But here's your permission. You are not crazy. That's a good question. Go run with it. Let me know how I can help. Here's resources. Here's books. Here's ideas. Here's conversations. Things of that nature. Um, the prescription for questioning that is community. You need people who you can talk with. You need people who you can converse with. You need people who think differently than you. You need people who look differently than you. You need people who are similar to you. You need people who are older than you. You need people who are younger than you. You need people who are deader than you are. Um, not just living community. You need most of the questions we have have been thought about for a couple thousand years. They've done some groundwork for us. We can build off of that. We can skip some steps because they've already thought through certain problems. So we can go look at that. Um, again, I don't think questioning doubt is intention with faith. Questioning doubt, if anything, I think helps us grow in our faith. A faith where we are able to walk trusting that God is who he is and will come through for us the way he said he'll come through for us. Questioning doubt, resistance doubt. Doubt and, and faith, I think, shouldn't be seen as enemies. Should be seen as companions. And when we experience doubt, our uncertainties, our questions, we should try to find how we might be able to leverage those to benefit our faith, to draw us closer to the Lord. Um, and as a Christian community, the last thing you want to do is shame people for having doubts or faith um, or, or uncertainties. The last thing you want to do is is make yourselves a closed-minded people, unable to hear other perspectives, unable to entertain other perspectives, unable to welcome those with doubts and questions. Um, I, I just think that's, that's a completely wrong trajectory that the church should be going in. Um, again, to repeat Buchner's phrase, I'm not sure you can be so much better. Doubts, I think, are the ants in the pants of faith. It keeps us moving. It keeps us awake. And if anything, it, it, it grows our faith. So as we come to the table this morning to receive communion, at the table, we express, I think, this phrase right here, I believe, help my unbelief. Because you're coming to the table. You're standing up. You're walking. That's faith, folks. You're doing something. You're trusting. And I can guarantee all of us in this room right now are coming, are walking with some questions, with some doubts, with some things we're just not sure about, some situations in our life weighing us down. That we're still waiting for God to come through. Um, on for us at the table we're, we're proclaiming and we're praying I believe help my unbelief I'm walking in faith and I need you to continue to grow my faith and to show me how to walk forward I might be knee deep in water but I'm still taking steps allow me to, to use that water to, to grow my faith to grow my trust in you be able to follow you more faithfully so we'll pray in just a moment and you'll be invited up to participate with us Father, we thank you for...